This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. I'm pretty scared, Charlie said. His voice was little more than a whisper. The low, steady moan of the wind outside was louder. I didn't think I would be, but I am. There's nothing to be scared of. Instead of taking Charlie's pulse, there was really no point. He took one of the old man's hand in his. He saw Charlie's twin sons at four on swings. He saw Charlie's wife pulling down a shade in the bedroom, wearing nothing but the slip of Belgian lace he'd bought her for their first anniversary. Saw how her ponytail swung over one shoulder when she turned to look at him. Her face lit in a smile that was all yes. He saw a farm mill tractor with a striped umbrella raised over the seat. He smelled bacon and heard Frank Sinatra singing Come Fly With Me from a cracked Motorola radio sitting on a work table littered with tools. He saw a hubcap full of rain reflecting a red barn. He tasted blueberries and gutted a deer and fished in some distant lake whose surface was dappled by the steady autumn rain. He was sixty, dancing with his wife in the American Legion Hall. He was thirty, splitting wood. He was five, wearing shorts and pulling a red wagon. Then the pictures blurred together, the way cards do when they're shuffled in the hands of an expert, and the wind was blowing big snow down from the mountains, and here in the silence was Azzy's solemn, watching eyes. At times like this, Dan knew what he was for. At times like this, he regretted none of the pain and sorrow and anger and horror, because they had brought him here to this room while the wind whooped outside. Charlie Hayes had come to the border. I'm not scared of hell. I lived a decent life, and I don't think there is such a place anyway. I'm scared there's nothing. <laughs> he struggled for breath. A pearl of blood was swelling in the corner of his right eye. There was nothing before. We all know that. So... Doesn't it stand to reason that there's nothing after? But there is. Dan wiped Charlie's face with a damp cloth. We never really end, Charlie. I don't know how that can be or what it means. I only know that it is. Can you help me get over? <laughs> they say you can help people. Yes, I can help. He took Charlie's other hand as well. It's just going to sleep. And when you wake up, you will wake up. Everything is going to be better. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host, and back with another review in my Stephen King series looking at his latest novel, Dr. Sleep, a sequel to his 1977 book, The Shining. Before I start, I want to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's reached out to me through Facebook, Twitter, the forums, and email regarding my reviews of the previous King books, specifically Salem's Lot and especially The Shining. I was concerned that the lengths of those shows would turn listeners away, but the book review of The Shining actually became one of iTunes' most downloaded podcasts in the literature category. So thank you, constant listeners, for downloading and for sharing with me your thoughts on these books and on my reviews. I hope you continue to do so. Links to our forums are at booksandnachos.com. For any new listeners joining us for the first time, welcome! 
This podcast is one of a series where I'm reading and reviewing every widely published Stephen King novel, short story, and even his nonfiction work. I'm doing this in partnership with another podcast I co-host, Now Playing, the movie review podcast you can hear at nowplayingpodcast.com. There, we are watching and reviewing all the movies based on Stephen King's work. Of course, we're reviewing classics like Kubrick's The Shining, but we're also doing the rest, like Children of the Corn, Urban Harvest. Now Playing Podcast is going in order of the story's original publication. Our first movie review was of the four Carrie films last October, tying into the new Carrie adaptation. And at Now Playing, we're really focusing on the movies. But on that show, I'm the Stephen King fan, and as a fan, I wanted to go much deeper and really analyze the author's literary works as well as the screen adaptations. So as we review the films at Now Playing Podcast, I will be here at Books and Nachos reviewing the original King works. But even more, I'll also be reviewing the King short stories and books that never had screen adaptations. Now I'm pacing these podcasts to be released in conjunction with the Now Playing Podcast counterparts. As such, I'll normally be going in order of King's original publication. But I am making exceptions, and Dr. Sleep is one of those. Please don't take this, as I'm going to be reviewing every new Stephen King book as it's released. My focus is going to be, like now playing, going in publication order. But doing that, with this newest book, I'd probably be reviewing Dr. Sleep sometime in 2017. And given that it's a direct sequel to The Shining... I wanted to review this book now, while the book and the film adaptations of The Shining were fresh in my mind and yours. I mean, after all, it's not every day that King writes a direct sequel to one of his novels. Yeah, most of King's books seem to exist in the same continuity, the prime reality as it's often referred to by King fans, but the stories are separate. Crossover characters are usually cameos or offhand references, sly winks and in-jokes for the constant readers. And King also has books that echo each other or tie together closely, such as Gerald's Game with Dolores Claiborne or Regulators with Desperation. But when it comes to actual sequels, King has few. The only one I know of is The Talisman and the Dark House Duology, and those were both co-written with Peter Straub. And yes, there is the Dark Tower book series, where King has written eight volumes so far, but those books are so meta that not only are they sequels to each other, but they also tie in most of King's bibliography. More, King never visioned The Gunslinger as a solo novel, but as the first part of a series. But despite those examples and a few short stories, the way One for the Road tied in the Salem's Lot, for King to take a standalone novel and write a direct follow-up, it's virtually unprecedented, despite how often his readers want it. In that regard, King has only himself to blame. As I mentioned in my reviews of Carrie and Salem's Lot, both books ended on cliffhangers, making the reader think terrible things may still lie ahead. Leave a reader hanging, and they are bound to want to know what comes next. But King has said he doesn't much care, that he doesn't want to do sequels, because readers and critics view it as an author running out of ideas. He also thinks most sequels, in his words, really suck. He knows there are exceptions, and strangely, in the author's note, he gives an exception to Psycho 4, although maybe not so strange as that was directed by his personal friend and director of the 1997 Shining miniseries, Mick Garris. But that generalization has influenced his writing choices. In interviews dating back to the early 80s, he said readers always ask what happened to Charlie, the little girl from Firestarter. 
and King would reply with a joke. Maybe she married Danny Torrance from The Shining, and the two moved to Salem's Lot to start a family. The joke is doubly funny because that kind of universe bending and melding is exactly what King likes to do with his Dark Tower series. But in more serious moments, King said he didn't care to tell about the girl from Firestarter because, quote, the story ends when the author doesn't know what happens next, unquote. He had no ideas how to continue the story of Firestarter. He didn't know what happened next, so Charlie's story was done. But while Charlie McGee may not have sparked King's imagination, Danny Torrance did, and there's likely a lot of reasons for that. First, The Shining is arguably King's best-known novel. I'd say only The Stand and It come close in terms of notability. More, it was an early hit for King, his first hardcover bestseller, and as such, that book would shape his entire career. In the 1980s, he'd say to interviewers that he had a love-hate relationship with The Shining, always feeling that his third published novel defined his career despite all the achievements of his later works. Yet, of course, realizing that to have a novel as successful as The Shining helped his future novels to sell and make him a very rich man. So, no matter what else King has written, The Shining is never far from the minds of his critics, his readers, or the author himself. And, as I've talked about both in my review of The Shining and the film adaptations we reviewed at Now Playing, King was very unhappy with Kubrick's film adaptation of the novel, and yet, it's that version with the creepy twin girls, the elevator shaft of blood, and all its other iconography that seems more well-known than the source book. It's a thorn in King's side, to the point that, in 1997, King would use his influence to finally bring his vision to screen in an ABC miniseries. You can hear our review on Now Playing to see if I feel it was a better adaptation than Kubrick's, but that series was scripted by King himself. Which leads to the third reason The Shining may have haunted the author's memories. King has said that Jack Torrance is the most autobiographical character he's ever written. For an in-depth analysis of what that may mean, you can listen to my podcast review of The Shining. But as it relates to the sequel, I'll reiterate that when King wrote The Shining, he was an alcoholic in denial. In the early to mid-70s, King was frustrated with his inability to get published and depressed over the death of his mother. He escaped the pressures and pains through drink. But by the time he wrote The Shining, King was making a comfortable living doing his dream job, writing novels. As such, he'd cut back his drinking, but not stopped entirely. Still, he considered his worst days of alcoholism behind him, and he wrote Jack Torrance as he viewed himself, a man who, through pure willpower, cured his addiction to liquor. But while King may have reduced his drinking, stopped spending bill money on beer, and not felt the alcohol-induced anger, he was not cured. It's very well documented by King himself that his worst days of addiction were the 1980s, when success and the pressures to continue that success led him to a cocaine and alcohol-fueled existence. He's discussed having to stick cotton balls up his nose while writing so that the blood wouldn't drip out from snorting too much coke and drip on his typewriter. The multimillionaire even got so low as to buying mouthwash for the alcohol while making maximum overdrive. It wasn't unusual for King's wife Tabitha to wake up and find King passed out in a puddle of his own vomit. He claims he was only sober for about three hours a day, and during those three hours, he'd think only of killing himself. Finally, in the late 80s, after an intervention staged by his family, King joined Alcoholics Anonymous. In the 1970s, he'd never even heard of AA. 
He said the reason Jack Torrance went cold turkey is because it was the only way King knew in the 1970s to stop drinking. But by the late 80s, King learned another way, which saved his marriage and likely his life. It's said that an alcoholic is never cured of his addiction. He's always an alcoholic, but even if King is still an alcoholic, he's one who hasn't had a drink or drugs in decades. But that experience changed King. Any constant reader, as I am, will notice a change in the tenor of King's fiction. A change that came with King's sobriety. Now, please, don't read that statement as saying his work improved or declined in quality. I'll be reviewing all these books in time, and then we can have that discussion. But to generalize all his work, his later novels lost that fever dream energy that gripped his earlier stories. The author's experiences with Alcoholics Anonymous influenced him to rewrite a bit of Jack Torrance's history, even when he did the 1997 miniseries. In that, he had Jack attend AA meetings in Colorado. And more, through subtle changes, he made Jack an even more innocent and likable character in the miniseries, whereas in the book, he was wonderfully ambiguous. King even ended the miniseries with a ghostly vision of Jack appearing to his teenage son, showing the two still shared love even after Jack tried to bash Danny's head in with a Denver croquet mallet. It's obvious from that 1997 miniseries that King looked at the version of himself written in The Shining and realized some of his base assumptions about his own addiction were wrong. Having gone through the program, King's view of alcoholism changed. And King has stated in interviews that the more often readers asked him why, in the novel, Jack Torrance didn't go to AA, the more King felt that question should be explored. But since Jack was dead, the best place to do that was his son, Danny. More. If Jack Torrance is a version of Stephen King on the page, then as King's children age, the author couldn't help but realize that Danny Torrance was aging as well. King stated in interviews that back to the early 1990s, the author would think, Danny's now 20, what's he doing? Is he drinking like his father? After all, as I discussed in last week's podcast, one of the big themes of The Shining is like father, like son. As King's real-world children turned into adults, the thought of what happened to the progeny of his fictionalized doppelganger plagued him. King then saw a news story about Oscar, a therapy cat in a hospice who could always foretell when a patient was going to pass away. While the patients would show no physiological change, when Oscar would jump on the bed and curl up with the patient, it indicated that the person's end was near. When King heard that, he thought it was a great idea for a story and merged it with Danny's ESP, deciding that a sequel to The Shining would have Danny working in a hospice and using his shining powers to help ease the pain and fear of the terminally ill as they died. The employees would nickname him Dr. Sleep. But even with all of that in mind, King left the final decision on if The Shining would get a sequel to his constant readers. With that brief description of the plot, King put a poll on his website in 2009 to allow fans to decide if he would write an eighth book in the theoretically put-to-bed Dark Tower series, or if he would write the sequel to The Shining. The voting pool must have been very limited, because under 12,000 votes were cast. He got three times that many followers on Twitter in the first few hours. But the end result of the poll was very tight, with Dr. Sleep winning by just 49 votes. I think that if you take the universally recognized The Shining and stand it next to King's more niche Dark Tower series with the general public, the result would be a landslide with hundreds of thousands of votes cast. But in this arena, it was the wind through the keyhole with 5,812 votes, Dr. Sleep with 5,861. 
but despite winning, The Wind Through the Keyhole was published first, back in February 2012, and Doctor Sleep was finally released in September of this year. I had read that it was supposed to come out last year to celebrate The Shining's 35th anniversary, but if that was ever King's intent, it didn't make that date. Now, as an aside, before I get into Doctor Sleep, I'd like to provide a spoiler warning. I do try to keep these reviews as spoiler-free as possible, but if you're listening to an analysis of Doctor Sleep, I'm going to assume you're already familiar with all aspects of The Shining. As such, this review will contain details about how The Shining ended. More, there will be some spoilers for Doctor Sleep. Some plot points here demand discussion. But I will have those late in the review and give considerable warning before the spoilers come. And I'll start by spoiling what's not in the book. As I said before, this book is a sequel. It's not just another story that features Danny Torrance. I knew little going into this book, but I knew King was calling it a sequel, so I had to wonder who else other than Danny would return. And as I mentioned in my review of The Shining, there were many questions left unanswered when that book concluded. The first is regarding Al Shockley. He was part owner of the haunted Overlook Hotel and member of the board of directors. It was Al who got Jack Torrance the job as caretaker. He's barely a character in the book, Jack talks to Al a couple times on the phone, and Al appears in flashback memories, but it was also insinuated that Al may have had a connection to Horace Derwent. Now, Derwent, you may remember, was the eccentric bisexual millionaire who owned the Overlook after World War II and used it for private parties and possibly mafia hits. Derwent's costume party was a centerpiece of Jack's ghostly experiences, and despite the Overlook changing hands repeatedly, it always tied back to Derwin, either through blood or through business. Now that Shockley, also a very rich man, was the owner, did that mean Shockley had nefarious connections or was some descendant of Derwent? I thought this was even more possible at the book's very end. Wendy Torrance is recovering from the beating she suffered from her now-dead husband, and it's mentioned that Al offered Wendy a job in Maryland. The last job Al found for the Torrance family ended poorly. Was this new job going to be another setup? Given that this book follows up with Danny later in life, I knew at least we'd find out more details about this seemingly generous job offer. The second question I had, and I raised it in a vaguely spoiler-free way in my review of The Shining, is about what made the Overlook special. What was it that made this Colorado hotel haunted when bad things happened at every hotel in the world? It's a question King raises through the character of Dick Halloran, the Overlook Hotel's psychic chef who formed an instant bond with Danny. More, who is the manager of the Overlook to which the ghosts keep referring? It certainly is an omniscient, malevolent being. By the book's end, Jack Torrance is fully dead, but the manager has inhabited the man's corpse to continue the hunt for Danny. Was the manager Horace Derwent? It's possible. It's also possible the manager was some other form of demonic evil. When Dick eventually rescues Danny and Wendy from the Overlook, he sees a dark shape that's described as, quote, a huge, obscene manta. Was this the manager's true visage? The pros suggest Dick may have imagined it, that it could have all been an illusion in the fire and the debris of the burning hotel. But then again, it also may have been all too real. If the manta shape was the manager, did it die while the Overlook burned? King writes in The Shining, fire will kill anything. Is that King's way of saying even the manta creature can be killed by the flames? Well, I don't know. I'll tell you right now, neither of those questions are answered, at least not overtly. 
perhaps we can read that the questions are answered by their lack of an answer. Al Shockley is never mentioned in Dr. Sleep, so perhaps he was just offering an act of kindness to a desperate family. The Manta is not mentioned either, but some of the Overlook's ghosts do return, including Horace Derwent. So maybe the Manta was killed in the fire, or maybe Derwent was the manager after all. In writing this novel, it's clear King isn't interested in exploring the ghosts of the past, but instead on revisiting Danny Torrance, or now that he's a grown man, he's known simply as Dan. But as I said, Dr. Sleep is a sequel to The Shining, not just another story about Dan Torrance. Yet, except for a couple cameos of both humans and ghosts, Dan is the only character from The Shining that's featured in the new book. That makes sense partially, because The Shining had only three main characters, Jack, Wendy, and Danny, and only two of them survived. But King wrote this as a revisiting of The Shining, and the echoes of that novel are here. It's not just Dan Torrance back, but the plot and the character arcs seem like a mirror of that 36-year-old book. Like The Shining, Dr. Sleep is broken down into five parts, though in this new book, King numbers only four of them, calling the first one Prefatory Matters. It's probably named that because at 50 pages, almost one-tenth of the book, it's too long to be called a prologue, but much shorter than the other sections. But if you take Prefatory Matters and Section 1, combined they are more than a third of the book. And for all of that, King is playing catch-up. For 200 pages, the book is almost completely devoid of what I'd call a conventional plot, instead choosing to give us a character study on Dan Torrance, going from the boy he was to the man he will become. King takes us through every stage of Dan's life, from the moment he leaves the Overlook until the time he's 40 and settled down in the town of Fraser, New Hampshire. King details how the boy had to learn to deal with his psychic power. Unable to block out the thoughts of those around him, teenage Dan turns to alcohol, which dulls his shining ability. By his 20s, he's a full-blown alcoholic, just like his dad. But unlike Jack Torrance, Dan eventually finds AA and stops drinking for good. The way this novel starts caught me off guard. The very last thing I expected from Dr. Sleep was to track the course of Dan's life, and I was equally unprepared for the psychic to stop his drinking so soon in the novel. I knew going into this book that Dan was an alcoholic like his dad. It seemed like a big motivator for this book's creation that King wanted to revisit the alcoholic Torrance family. It was brought up in every pre-release interview. Now that King knew about AA, he wished Jack, his literary doppelganger, had found out as well. Like I said, he wrote Jack going to AA in the TV miniseries of The Shining, but he couldn't go back and change the original novel, so instead he has Dan go to AA. And Dan's arc is another echo of The Shining. In that first book, we found out a lot about Jack Torrance's bad experiences as a boy, being beaten by his father and his heavy drinking and partying days, and eventually his white-knuckle sobriety. But when the book started, all of that had already happened. It's told to us in flashback as The Shining goes on. And in my review of that book, I commended King for how he handled all this background information. The past mingled with the present in an engaging way that kept drawing me, as the reader, deeper and deeper into this fictional world. I actually imagined a book where Jack Torrance's story is told completely chronologically, and I wondered if any reader would make it past the prologue. Well, in an unexpected twist, that is exactly what King does with Dr. Sleep. It's the same character beats, but told in the exact opposite way. 
By telling the story completely chronologically, King's making a gamble that the reader picking up Dr. Sleep already likes Dan because they read The Shining. After all, if you don't like Dan, why would you be interested in spending so much time reading about his drunkenness? The only other option is that King thinks reading of someone's beating alcoholism will instantly make them a likable character. But I don't think that's the case, as during these sections, King shows us Dan getting in fights, spending money on coke and liquor, having one-night stands, and more. King wants us to think Dan is as big a son of a bitch as his father was. But the key words in that last sentence are, wants us to. King wants us to think. Dan is as big of a son of a bitch as his father was. But the author pulls his punches. Let me give you the shining example. King has said in interviews that his son Owen read a draft of Dr. Sleep. A published writer himself, Owen King told his father that the book was missing the moment where Dan, as an alcoholic, hit rock bottom. In The Shining, Jack and Al had their moment when Al, driving drunk, hit a bicycle that miraculously had no rider. Per Owen, Dan needed such a moment where he would do something so despicable it would make him want to reform. King agreed and in rewrites expanded on this section, adding a scene where Dan wakes up in the bed of a woman he met the night before. She'd convinced Dan to spend his entire paycheck on cocaine the two of them could snort, and the next morning Dan wakes up to find all his money gone and the woman passed out. He then sees her baby boy come out, crawling towards the cocaine, thinking it's candy, and Dan notices signs of abuse on the child, there are bruises, and The Shining tells Dan it's the boy's uncle beating him. But rather than intervene on the child's behalf, Dan steals the last $70 from the woman's purse, cleans up the cocaine so the baby can't get it, and leaves the two in the apartment. This act haunts, haunts Dan through the rest of the book. He considers this act so utterly horrible that even a decade into his sobriety, he's so embarrassed he can't tell his sponsor about it. Now, I'm not saying stealing the last money of a passed-out woman who lives on food stamps is honorable, but it's far from despicable and unforgivable. If this moment is supposed to be to Dan what hitting the bicycle was to Jack, it failed. And if King wants us to believe that Dan is as big of a son of a bitch as his father was, he failed. King, the master of horror, is seemingly afraid. Afraid of alienating his readership by making Dan go too dark. Had Dan let the child go and eat the cocaine, that would have been dark. Dan should have gone to dark places during his drinking days. Very dark places. His father beat up a student in the school parking lot, and his son, who we're supposed to think is on his father's path, steals 70 bucks. Hell, even the passed out woman doesn't think it's that bad. A few years later, she and her son are both dead, but they appear to Dan as ghosts. She's forgiven him. She says she sold the coke he left and actually made money on the deal. And this is still in the early sections of the book. But despite the forgiveness of the woman he robbed, Dan is still haunted by his actions. It's a conceit that just doesn't work. Had Dan done something truly terrible, something he had to atone for, it really would have made him a more interesting character. That his worst character flaw was that he didn't intervene on behalf of an abused child? Well, it shows Dan isn't a hero, but he's just a little bit gray. Which leads me to the ultimate point about Dan Torrance. He isn't a great character like his dad. I went on and on in my review of The Shining about how Jack Torrance felt like a real human being. Dan never does. 
Instead, Dan feels like the generic male hero in a Stephen King book. I found myself thinking quite a bit about Mike Noonan, the protagonist of King's 1998 book Bag of Bones, and also Bill Denborough from It, Needful Things, Alan Pangborn, Barbie from Under the Dome, the book, not the TV series. They're all interchangeable do-gooder men from later King novels, and I'm now adding Dan Torrance to that roster. This isn't to say I don't like Dan, but I'm mostly indifferent. I never believe he's a bad guy. He never does anything truly despicable. He also never feels real. When he sobers up, he's just too altruistic, too kind. He's a Dudley do-right. When he's bad, he's only so-so bad. And when he's good, he's very good. Again, look at his tortured memory of just not doing everything he could have done to protect a baby. Dan is like Spider-Man. He feels that with his great shining power must come great responsibility. I mean, it's funny, but it seems like Danny Torrance hasn't matured much at all. In The Shining, he was a goody-goody trying to save his family. The complexity of the character was when a little bit of his father's temperament would show up in him. But he was no Jack Torrance in that book, and he still isn't in Dr. Sleep. And even King knows that Dan's act of stealing $70 isn't that bad. It's revealed pretty late in the book. But that's where this starts to fall apart. If King won't let Dan do something truly awful for fear of alienating the reader, but Dan is going to be tormented and motivated throughout the rest of the book by this not-so-terrible act, then his motivation is weak and it's obvious to me the reader. But I was torn while reading this. See, I think King writes Dan Torrance the man with the presumption of reader empathy. Dan is our lead character. He survived The Shining, so of course we're going to root for him, and King doesn't need to do anything. That is a poor, poor writing choice. It means that new readers have nothing in Dan Torrance to like. But the dichotomy for me is that in my case, King was right to presume empathy. I'm reading these 200 pages of setup, and I'm into it. Why? Not because of how King was writing Dan in this book, but because I survived The Shining with Danny, and I loved Danny's father, Jack, so I wanted to see what would happen. I read through these first two sections to see what Dan would become. I was engaged, but I wasn't enveloped the way I was with The Shining, and I couldn't help but wonder if it wouldn't have been better, both for new readers, but also to establish a bit of mystery, if the book started in present day as The Shining did, and then like that previous novel, fill us in on the backstory as we go. I know I would have been even more invested if King had withheld the information on what happened to Wendy, what happened to Dick, and what happened to Dan himself. Had that information been teased, left a mystery, and then dripped out, it could have played even better than it does. Worse, in these early chapters, King sets things up in very unsubtle ways. It's a flaw of The Shining that carries over and is magnified in Doctor Sleep. In The Shining, I knew from the very early pages that the book was going to end with the boiler exploding. Here in Doctor Sleep, there's not one, but many elements that are equally as obvious. For while King spends a lot of time on what is essentially Dan's backstory, the scenes are not without their own spooks, as well as some cameos from Shining alumni. We find out that Wendy didn't take Al's job in Maryland, as due to the back injury she sustained at the hand of her husband's roke mallet, she was unable to work for three years. Wendy and Dan moved around, living on their settlement, and eventually ended up in Florida, but despite the geographical distance from Colorado, the Overlook's ghosts were not left behind. Two spirits, Mrs. Massey, the woman from 217 who tried to choke Danny, and Horace Derwent both come after the boy. 
It's up to Dick Halloran to show Danny the shining tricks, which will beat these spirits for good. To which I can only say, uh, Dick, had you shown Danny that back in 1977, maybe his daddy would still be alive. Also during these early scenes, Dick tells 8-year-old Danny that right now, Danny is the student and Dick is the teacher. But someday, Dan will come across another person who shines, and then Danny will be the teacher. So, very early on in the novel, I realize this story is going to be about Dan and a new young child with ESP. It's clear that our story here will echo the last. A psychic child will be threatened by an evil force, and Dan will have to come to the child's aid as Dick came to his. But who will be the bad guys? Well, in these first two sections of the book, Dan isn't the only character we follow. We're also introduced to the True Knot, a group of mostly old people who travel the United States in RVs. Led by Rose the Hat, the True Knot are a type of vampire. They have no aversion to sunlight, no super strength, and they can eat garlic, but members of the True Knot are immortal, if they feed on the living. But they don't feed on blood, they feed on what they call steam. Steam is an energy that leaves the body when a human dies. All humans give off some steam, but those who have the shining give off the most. And the stronger their ESP ability, the more steam they release. And for the true knot, it's quantity that matters. They age very rapidly, and if they don't feed on steam every few weeks, they will die. When they feed on steam, they return to the age they were when they returned. And in Rose the Hat's case, that's the form of a young and sexy Irish brunette. Some of the other members of the group just simply look less old. But having lived for hundreds of years, the member of the True Knot were very wealthy, and they kept mobile so no one noticed their aging and de-aging. In the first portions of the book, we're introduced to several members of the True Knot. While they were all born with normal names, they are as insulated as a group of carnies and give each other names like Jimmy Numbers, Crow Daddy, and Snake by Dandy. And they even refer to outsiders as Rubes. Most members of this tribe have some form of psychic power. It is a ritual to convert someone to becoming part of the true knot, and not everyone they try to convert can survive. So the choice to add a new member to the ranks is often based upon a new skill they can bring to the group. And they want to keep their ranks small, because the more members they have, the more they have to share their steam. And steam is so desired that the true knot have to hunt for it. Normal humans give off so little that the knot must find people with the shining and kill them. More, through conversations between Dick and Danny, we learn that the shining peaks in children while they're young. Adults may shine, but never as strongly as kids. So the true knot seeks out young kids to kill to support their lifestyle. And oh, by the way, if King writing about a group of rich retirees trying to live forever by feeding off the children isn't blunt enough a social statement for you, King is going to beat you over the head with it. On September 11th, 2001, Rose the Hat leads the True Knot to a New Jersey park. Their psychic powers inform them of the 9-11 attacks, and the True Knot is literally feeding on those who died when the Twin Towers fell, continuing their own immortality through that tragedy. While I wonder if that scene is in poor taste in general, it makes very clear that King is writing the True Knot as an obvious allegory. Rose the Hat and her people are like Dick Cheney and his ilk who stay at home and profit off wars where America's young are sent to die. It's a parallel King draws to make the True Knot even more evil. But other than the old thriving by killing their young, it never really pays out in any other way. 
It could be seen that this is an echo of the threat that ran through so many of King's books about how the parent tries to kill the child. Only here is the elders feeding off the youthful generation. But it's an argument that's written with less teeth, possibly because King himself is now eligible for social security. Then again, the true knot in general seems to be writ weak. First, of the entire crew, only Rose the Hat is a well-defined character. She's appealing by being a sexy, young woman, at least in physical appearance, even though she's lived for a great many years. More, she's smart and cunning, the strongest of her tribe. She's their leader in every way. But her strength comes at the expense of the rest of the True Knot, who seem mostly defined by their names. Jimmy Numbers is an accountant. Snakebite Andy can charm people to sleep. King spends a lot of time telling us of the emotional and sexual relationships in the Knot, but it's almost as detached as seeing a genealogy chart. Even the characters that get some backstories, such as Snakebite Andy's early life molestation that makes her a lesbian, it's all for nothing. It's made very clear early on that only Rose the Hat is a threat. The rest are just numbers. This is driven home when the ghost of Dan's one-night stand appears to him and calls Rose the Queen Bitch of Castle Hell. More, as leader of a large group, Rose has to play politician at times. The ranks must be placated and satisfied, so Rose is part leader of a band of murderers and part cat wrangler trying to keep all the disgruntled oldsters in line. But we can also never forget that these people are cold-blooded killers. There's one scene in Dr. Sleep, and just one, where Rose and the others perform a horrific murder on a young boy. With the groups of old folks completely unmoved by the boy's pleas for mercy, the scene ranks up there as one of King's most graphic. The longer they can draw out the boy's agony, the more steam he'll release. So it's not just the murder of a child, but the brutal torture of one. And while the boy begs for a quick death, Rose refuses it. King's constant readers will surely see some parallels between the true knot and Pennywise the Clown, who also fed off the psychic energy and fear of his victims. But in the book It, Pennywise was always hungry and evil. Here in Dr. Sleep, this boy's death is the only moment in the book where the true really come across as evil. In fact, for being the bad guys in the story, they actually come off somewhat likable. The members are often married or in long-term relationships with others of their kind. The younger ones are sexually free and very powerful. They can throw a good party, and yes, they do kill children sometimes to survive, but they make the very good point that lobsters feel pain when put in boiling water, but we humans don't stop eating them. And if you say, well, lobsters aren't children, think about that next time you order up a plate of veal parmesan. But to go back to this book's parallels with The Shining, I concede the true knot as this book's ghosts. After all, using the true knot, King is explaining more what the hotel wanted with Danny. The hotel wanted his steam. Had the boy died, his power, his steam, would have been released. The hotel could have absorbed that the same way the true knot feed off steam. I always wondered what the ghost of the Overlook would gain by Danny's death. And here, King makes it definitive that the death of a psychic releases that power so that other supernaturals can absorb it. But by the same token, by making the true knot relatable, King robs them of their power and their horror. The true knot cannot hold a candle to Horace Derwent and Mrs. Massey in terms of malevolent evil. When those two ghosts from the Overlook make their appearances here in Dr. Sleep, they bring with them the eerie feelings of the supernatural unknown that permeated that earlier book. 
So not only comparing Dr. Sleep to The Shining, but comparing the true knot in this book to the ghosts in this book, the true knot is a weak, weak baddie. And perhaps in that regard, the true knot aren't the ghosts of the Overlook, but the new Jack Torrance. I remarked how in The Shining, I found myself relating to Jack, though I knew him to be a rageaholic drunk. In this book, King gives us a group of child killers, but imbues them with relatable, human qualities and failings. Also, the knot hurt children when they crave their next meal, and for the true knot, that meal is steam. For Jack, he was craving the next drink. It would help to balance why the true knot is sympathetic, but if that's the case, it leaves this book with a gaping hole because there is no true evil, no Overlook Hotel, no malevolent force that The Shining had in abundance. And more than just being weak, the true knot are dying. One boy we watched them kill had not been vaccinated for the measles. Having fed off the steam of the diseased boy, members of the True Knot were getting infected and starting to die quickly, and Rose's supply of steam was low. They were in desperate need of a major source of steam, or their entire clan would cease to exist. Did King write this to engender more sympathy for Rose and her people, or was it there to make them seem more dangerous, like a cornered tiger? It certainly set up the stage for the group's one big score plot, but it also spotlights that the big evil of this book is not omnipotent. In fact, as the members of the True Knot continue to die from the disease, I couldn't help but think how pointless Dan and the other heroes of this novel are. If the good guys just hide long enough, every single member of the True Knot are going to die from natural causes. So to try and replenish their diminishing steam as well as recover from the measles that is slowly killing them, Rose leads the True Knot to their biggest score of steam ever. The strongest psychic they've ever encountered. Her name is Abra Stone. As the book points out, like abracadabra. She's 12 years old, and she shines like the sun. Rose had been letting the girl age for her powers, her steam, to reach their peak. But now the knot needs to feed, so Rose is sending the group after the girl. Rose also hopes that Abra has been properly vaccinated, and perhaps her inoculated steam will cure the infected vampires. But now I'd like to point out, Rose has no plan B. There are no other psychics Rose is out to hunt. She is simply betting the survival of her people against a girl who may be the single most powerful psychic that has ever lived. I don't understand how they could have lived for hundreds of years, led by a person who bets everything on such a poor strategy. The true knot is outmatched from the start, and that makes them even worse as the book's big bad. As for the girl, Abra lives in Anniston, New Hampshire, about 20 miles away from Fraser. And she really expands the definition of what it means to have the shining. Dick could use it to hear thoughts and communicate a little bit with others. Danny was the most powerful psychic Dick had met, but he still only had the power to read thoughts, project thoughts, and see ghosts. In the 1997 TV miniseries, King did expand Danny's powers slightly. He could break taillights and basketball backboards. But in the original Shining book and in Doctor Sleep, Dan is merely psychic. But even as a newborn infant, Abra is not only psychic, but she's also highly telekinetic. She can perform astral projection, and she can even make music play around her from thin air. In short, she's Carrie White from King's very first novel. If you remember that book, or my recent review of it, and not the multitude of movie adaptations, King's original Carrie wasn't just telekinetic. She was also psychic, pyrokinetic, and more. At the end of King's novel, Carrie, an infant baby girl is described as having telekinetic powers. 
It's the cliffhanger ending that this new girl is born, and she may bring death and destruction with her the way Carrie White did. I actually went back and pulled out Carrie again to see if that baby may in fact have been Abra Stone and Dr. Sleep, a sequel to both Carrie and The Shining. It turns out that's not the case. Carrie was written to take place in the future, but the future still had that baby girl born in the 80s. Abra was born in the new millennium, so she could be 12 years old for the majority of the book. But even though Abra is not literally the new baby from the end of Carrie, in all other ways she is. Abra also has a connection to Dan Torrance. Abra was born about the same time that Dan joined AA and finally got sober. We're often reminded of Dan's getting a new AA anniversary chip in step with Abra celebrating a new birthday. Like Dan, Abra was born with a call on her face. But perhaps most interestingly, Abra communicates with a spectral teenage boy named Tony. As you may recall from The Shining, Tony was a boy who appeared to Danny in his visions, and he warned the boy about the dangers at the Overlook Hotel. It was revealed at the end of the novel that Tony was a teenaged version of Danny. In Dr. Sleep, we're told Dan grew up, and due to his drinking as well as his weakening psychic powers, Tony rarely appeared anymore. But when he did, he still always appeared as that teenage boy. In fact, it was Tony's first appearance in a long time that told Dan to stay in Fraser, New Hampshire. Still a very young girl, Abra also communicates with Tony, though she's actually communicating, albeit in a rudimentary fashion, with Dan. It's speculated that Abra may see Dan still as Tony, as a boy who would be far more comforting to a young girl than a 40-year-old man would be. In part one of the novel, as we follow Dan and the true knot in the 21st century, we also get stories of Abra's powers, as seen by her parents, David and Lucy, and Lucy's maternal grandmother, Concetta. As we read of Abra making spoons float from the ceiling and playing mysterious music, we also read of the knot feeding on psychics. Add to this Dick telling Danny that someday he would have a student of his own, and less than a fifth of the way into the novel, King has laid bare what the entire book's eventual plot will be. Then we just have to wait almost half the book for King to get where the reader is already, and these three disparate storylines finally intertwine. By that point, we've seen the true knot roam the country becoming weaker, Abra growing up becoming stronger, and Dan staying put in Fraser, coming to terms with sobriety. It's ironic, though. The true knot doesn't find Abra. The girl finds them. Looking at a page of Have You Seen Me? Missing Children, Abra shines on the murder of a young boy, and in doing so, Abra makes psychic contact with Rose. After this contact, Rose sees Abra as a way to save her tribe, so Abra then reaches out to Dan, who Abra thinks might be Tony's dad. Dan, smartly, is worried about a 40-year-old man being seen with a 12-year-old girl and the rumors and criminal charges that may follow, but the two have a mutual acquaintance, Dr. John Dalton. Abra's pediatrician and a fellow AA member with Dan. The two also rope in Abra's father, David, and Dan's first friend in Fraser, Billy Freeman. Perhaps it's because I recently read Salem's Lot, but the scene of Dan and Abra recruiting more people to their side and having to convince them of the psychic powers and the spiritual vampires play very similar to the forming of the vampire hunting posse in King's second novel, Salem's Lot. All of it relies on convincing these new people, 
one of whom is a doctor. And despite outrageous stories, Dan and Abra are met with very little resistance as the four men align to protect the girl from the forces of the true knot. And the knot doesn't find out about Dan's involvement until late in the game, again putting them at the disadvantage. They're going up against a powerful psychic who, on her own, could possibly have defeated the true knot. Add to that four men, one of whom is also a powerful psychic, and the true knot is completely outmatched. In a book, it's nice at times to feel the good guys have no chance of winning, and that is never the case in Dr. Sleep. The book plays it very safe. And as I said, Abra is strong enough to have escaped the true knot for some time. And the true knot are slowly dying off. It is a sin of storytelling and plotting if you could take your main character out of a story and the results would be the same. But I think, had Dan not stayed in Frasier, had Dan stayed with that drunken girl and her baby, had Dan died on a drunken bender, Abra may still have lived and the entire true knot may have just died of the measles. But instead of that happening, Dan does get involved, and this is really odd. The True Knot do fire the first salvo. They try to kidnap Abra. But for much of this book, it's Dan on the hunt. With the theory that the best defense is a good offense, Dan, aided by Abra, go after the True Knot to a final showdown that takes place in an RV park that just so happens to have been built near the spot where the Overlook burned to the ground 35 years before. But let's cut to the chase. In the 1986 trailer for his directorial debut, Maximum Overdrive, Stephen King looked out at his audience and said, I'm going to scare the hell out of you, and that's a promise. It's a promise that the author seemed to be interested in keeping in the 1970s and 1980s. But in the author's note at the end of Dr. Sleep, King wrote, People change. The man who wrote Dr. Sleep is very different from the well-meaning alcoholic who wrote The Shining, but both remain interested in the same thing telling a kick-ass story. Note, he said kick-ass story, not a terrifying tale. And I find that very funny, because in many pre-release interviews about Dr. Sleep, King expressed some trepidation about making a sequel to The Shining. He was afraid that people wouldn't be scared by this book, and they'd come up to him and say, The Shining was scary, and Dr. Sleep isn't. And he'd point out that when many of his readers first read The Shining, they were children or early teenagers, and it's easy to scare children. Now those children are adults, and they're harder to scare. But perhaps King himself is afraid to try to scare adults and fail. But it's ironic that he'd be afraid of people complaining that this book didn't scare them, as it does not seem at any point King is writing a horror novel. The Shining is horror at its absolute finest. Dr. Sleep is an adventure tale with a few supernatural elements, but at no point does its design appear to be too frightened. So while it may mirror that first book in some character arcs and return to some locales, the books are written by two very different men, the young, hungry Stephen King and the aged, experienced Stephen King. And I'll state it really plainly. Dr. Sleep is a lesser book than The Shining. No character in Dr. Sleep is as nuanced as Jack Torrance. No situation in Dr. Sleep grips the imagination the way the Overlook Hotel did. It is lesser, but that doesn't make it bad. King referenced his age discussing the writing of Dr. Sleep. He said, quote, 
As you get older, you lose some of the velocity off your fastball. Then you have to resort more to craft, to the curve, to the slider, to the changeup, to things other than that raw force. King certainly does that here. This book is an addicting read. I've already admitted a bias towards liking Dan Torrance, and during the first two sections, the ones I still wonder if they should have been told as they were, I was constantly wondering, what would happen to Dan? Who is Dr. Sleep? And as the stories of the True Knot and Abra started to be told in parallel, yeah, I knew the three would intersect, but I really, really wanted that to happen. I'd read each section, eager for the confrontation to begin. And that sounds like it may imply impatience with the pacing, but there's more to it than that. At no point did I think Dr. Sleep needed to get on with it. I was just so intrigued in what was being set up, I wanted to see where King would take it. I'm not sure if a new reader who'd never read The Shining or was lukewarm on that book would feel the same way, but I was just enthralled with the story of Dan Torrance, the grown psychic, and this young girl that he would have to help guide to safety. I also really liked reading about the true knot. They were funny and bumbling, but Rose and Andy were also sexy and dangerous. In my mind, I kept equating the true knot to the vampires in The Lost Boys. They're a fun group of guys to hang around, and the viewer feels bad seeing them defeated, even though we watch them slaughter a group of partiers on the beach. Here, the true knot is equal parts villainous and likable. And Abra is a bit of a flat character. She's a very angsty 12-year-old girl who thinks she knows better than the adults around her. In many ways, her portrayal took me back to Mark Petrie in Salem's Lot, a young character that King writes is just a bit too smart and just a bit too powerful to fully click with the reader. I never once felt Abra was in danger in this book. She's the MacGuffin that everyone's chasing after, but little more. Still, her interplay with Dan and her growing powers made her fun to read. I have a theory about this. In Dr. Sleep, King makes a couple snide swipes at the Twilight books and what he calls tweenager porn. By having a super smart, super powerful tween girl at the heart of Dr. Sleep, a book that is really without danger, I wonder if this book could appeal to the younger female readership who have just finished the longest Harry Potter book and would be ready to sink their teeth into a 500-page novel about a psychic girl. But... While her characterization was flat and a little too idealized, Abra was never off-putting. Her parents, on the other hand, well, Abra's dad, David, is extraordinarily bland. A struggling writer, he's a pushover, easily swayed by Dan and Abra to join their posse, even though he knows his wife wouldn't approve. And Lucy Stone, Abra's mom, is the worst character in the book. She's a stereotype of an Italian woman. She's often in some form of emotional hysterics, be it due to her grandmother's terminal illness or her daughter's abduction. Thankfully, Lucy isn't in the book much, but when she is, she annoys the living hell out of me. I understand that she serves a purpose for the plot. I mean, the book needed a rational person who's reluctant to believe in psychic vampires and telekinetics, and Lucy's attempts to protect her daughter and keep Abra far away from Dan actually does more to further the True Knot's cause than anything Rose the Hat does. But it's the way Lucy is written as a flat female caricature that, when I'd read her dialogue, it was like hearing fingernails on a chalkboard in my head. But in this entire book, she's the only characterization I'd classify as bad. No character struck me as incredibly realistic, there's no Jack Torrance here as I've said, most of the characters exist to service the plot. 
but they're fine characters in a decent story. So, yeah, King lost his fastball with age. He gave us weak villains, two-dimensional characterizations, and a very obvious plot. But as he said, he had the craft, the curveball, the slider. His writing was such that my interest was kept high. Yeah, some of the things were very obvious, but once we got to the second half of the novel, I was kept guessing. I did wonder how the book would end, and I was torn between wanting to take my time and enjoy my reading experience and my hunger to know what happened next. And more, this book really got to me in an emotional way. The Shining may have made me afraid, but Dr. Sleep actually brought me to the verge of tears. It's in these later, sober days of Dan's life that the book's title comes into play. In The Shining, Wendy and Jack called their son Doc, a reference to Bugs Bunny. Grown up, Dan is still called Doc because his moniker is Dr. Sleep. He's taken a job as an orderly at a hospice, and Dan uses his psychic powers to help the terminally ill pass on to whatever there is after death. The hospice's house cat, Azriel, would curl up with the patients about to pass on, and that's when the nurses would call in Dan. As they lie alone in their beds, these people, usually elderly, are afraid. They're clinging to their last thoughts, be it of the dog that will need someone to care for it, or a fear that it will hurt to die, thoughts of the afterlife they'll go to, or the thought that there is no afterlife. Dan is the one who can calm them. He tells them death is just like going to sleep, and then Dan sits with them, and eventually he sees the steam, their old diseased steam, but steam just the same, exit their body. These are powerful scenes. I'm not sure if I was still a teenager that these scenes would resonate, but now I'm almost 40 and I've been at the deathbed of loved ones and held their hand as they died. Experiences like these make me think ahead to my own deathbed, and reading these passages in Dr. Sleep got to me. I couldn't help but every time I'd read one of these passages, but feel like Roy Batty from Blade Runner. I think about the things I've seen and experienced and all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. These are the emotions King wrings from me with these incredibly human deathbed passages. King is able to write in a way that never makes these events schmaltzy or overly sentimental, just searingly real. And I read one of these at work on my lunch hour, and I had to fight to emotionally keep it together. Had I been at home, had I been completely alone, had I been in a place where I might have allowed my emotions to completely get away from me, I very well could have broken down, racked with sobs, because these are the emotions King brings. There's a small handful of these scenes where Dan helps someone pass on, but they're always minor characters. I did wonder how Dan's gift of euthanizing the dying tied into the plot of the book, and in most ways it doesn't. However, in looking for a theme of the book, it's a book of cycles. King writes, death was no less a miracle than birth, and I see that here. We have the death of human children while the true knot lives on. We see the true knot killing a boy, promising a quick death but lying, as we see Dan helping ease the elderly out of this world. And I do believe part of this book is King wrestling with his own mortality. I mean, in 1999, it's well known he was hit by a truck and almost killed, his leg almost amputated, but the author pulled through, keeping both life and limb. But now, 
He's in his mid to late 60s, and the author must see the approaching sunset that he avoided once, and this book seems like a reflection on, or a prediction of, what it means to die. In the book, King writes that Abby's grandmother wrote a poem, and part of it is, quote, God's a connoisseur of fragile things, and he decorates his cloudy outlook with ornaments of the finest glass. King makes it clear, we humans are the ornaments that God continues to break. Having met ghosts, Dan is certain there's something in the afterlife, be it a Christian heaven or something else entirely. But I have to say, there's a theme of Christianity that permeates Dr. Sleep. And as I mentioned in my previous reviews, in the 1970s, King refused to even answer when asked if he believes in God. But now, if you go to StephenKing.com, it's stated right there, yes, he believes in God, and he reads the Bible. Not has read the Bible, but reads the Bible. And given that the doctrine of Alcoholics Anonymous has a large reliance on faith in God, in many ways, I see Dr. Sleep as King wrestling with a belief in God. Surely Dan is wondering if God exists, and having those common thoughts that if God exists, why does he let bad things happen to good people? Why does he allow psychic vampires to murder innocent boys? But a lot of Dr. Sleep is a seeming love letter to AA and the doctrine it preaches. Several times when the book gets stressful, Dan longs for a drink, and it's his faith in God, or at least a higher power, and a giving over of power to that God that gets Dan through. A repeated mantra in the book is, I can't, God can. I think I'll let him. Now, I've not been to AA, and King's book is perhaps the most detailed accounting of it that I've ever read. However, be this book a comment on how AA's practices helped King save his own life, or how the power of God did, or a combination, these are the explorations at hand. That said, while the themes are spiritual, the plot stays human. I'm happy to say, the hand of God does not come down to detonate a nuclear bomb at the end of Dr. Sleep. The themes of God and spirituality are more character exploration than plot-based. And speaking of other King books, there are references here to more than just The Shining. It's said that the True Knot owns many cities through their great wealth, places they can return to time and again. With the theory that evil places would call evil people, we find one of these, as I mentioned, is the RV park at the site where the Overlook burned in Colorado. Another just happens to be Jerusalem's Lot, Maine. We never visit that town that was once overrun with vampires, but I wonder if the True Knot killed all the classic vampires that nested there. And Dan doesn't stray too far from King's old stomping ground. We're told that Fraser, New Hampshire, the town where Doc Sleep finally settles down, is just across the border from Castle Rock, Maine. But King also employs a hint of nepotism in his world building. Dick tells a story about being molested when he was a young child, which invokes the character Charlie Manx from Joe Hill's book Nosferatu, 4A2, or if you don't play bumper stumpers, Nosferatu. And for those who don't know, Joe Hill is a pen name for Joseph Hillstrom King, Stephen King's other writer son. In researching, I see that his book Nosferatu also has some broad references to the true knot. So perhaps we have a new King writer who's going to carry the torch of Stephen's prime reality. Though it's not just blood, at one point a character makes a big deal about a website, World360. I hadn't heard of that site and I looked it up, and King's actually just borrowing that site from the novel Trust Your Eyes by Linwood Barclay. 
but the references are primarily from King's own original book, The Shining. And Dr. Sleep is a very good book, but it falls far from greatness, and in coming with the shadow of The Shining, that is the bar by which this new book is measured. With subpar baddies and obvious setup that takes literally half the book, this story written by a lesser author would likely never gain a pass from me. But King takes this book and his writing style elevates it to a completely engrossing read. Which is not to say the silliness of the past is gone. Lest we forget the evil fire hose and the dangerous plants of The Shining, King has some ridiculous concepts in this book as well. For one, it's said that Rose the Hat has a true face, and that it's a hideous face with a single giant tooth like a walrus tusk. My mental imagining of this attractive, dark-haired Irish woman, face distended by a tusk, is far from frightening, and in fact is kind of laughable. But worse, the book does fall apart at the climax. And now I'm going to get into some spoiler territory, so if you don't want some surprises revealed, now is a very good time to jump ship. Are you still with me? As I was saying, but worse, it's revealed that Abra is Dan's niece. Hence why Abra was born with a call like Dan, and hence why Abra is such a powerful psychic like Dan. The link is Jack Torrance. During his drunken days at the Stovington Academy, it seems Jack did more than beat his son and neglect his wife. He also had an affair with a student. That student, Consetta's daughter, quit school and raised their daughter, Lucy, alone. Lucy, Abra's mother, is Dan's half-sister. First of all, I want to point out, this is the exact same plot device used for that film The Rage Carry 2. That the father is the one with the power, and then he passes that power on to his children. And more... When it's revealed to the family and us by Dan, it comes across very much like that uncomfortable scene in Return of the Jedi where Luke Skywalker says to Princess Leia, The Force is strong in my family. My father has it. I have it. And my sister has it. I mean, the exact line King writes is, My father was your father, Lucy. I'm your half-brother. Now, they do explain away the wild coincidence that despite having moved around the country, Dan ends up with Abra. That was Tony's doing when Tony appeared and said, stay in Fraser." Tony has led Abra to Dan and Dan to Abra. Now, Dr. Sleep does confirm through this and a few other lines what I suspected in The Shining, that Jack Torrance himself shined, but had repressed it. But that they have retconned Jack's drunkenness to shoehorn in an illegitimate daughter is too much of a stretch. More than that, I don't understand why they needed this twist. While it creates a familial blood tie between Dan and Abra and pays off some physical mannerisms of Abra, it doesn't help strengthen the relationships of the characters. Yes, this is a book about families. Abra has her family and her grandmother, extended family. Dan has his family of AA who he can turn to. All of his AA supporters help Dan when he needs it. The true knot refers to themselves as a family. Yes, we have all kinds of family, both literal and metaphorical, in this book. But this blood relationship added nothing. Dan was already ready to lay down his own life to protect Abra. Lucy is still ready to let Dan die if it saves her daughter. She doesn't care if Dan is or isn't her long-lost half-brother. 
And I would have gone with this twist a bit more if King had made the bold move of killing Dan. At many points in the novel, I did think that Dan would have to sacrifice himself to destroy the true knot. I'm supposed to think that. Part of his psychic ability added in this book is that Dan can sense those for whom death is near by seeing flies on their faces. As he goes to the ultimate showdown with the true knot, Dan looks in a mirror and sees the flies on his own face. Having this familial tie could have become a passing of the torch. Danny, the boy in The Shining, was the most powerful psychic, but now that mantle is passed to Abra. I was kept in suspense if the mantle of Dr. Sleep would also pass. Would Dan maybe be wounded in the battle with the True Knot, and Abra use her ability to help ease his pain in the last minutes? Had Dan done something truly horrible during his drinking years, something for which he really needed to atone, I would find that a real fitting conclusion for this character. Had the baby gone face down in the cocaine, perhaps Dan would need to sacrifice his own life to save a child as redemption. But Dan did nothing so bad as to warrant his death, and, indeed, like Dick in The Shining, Dan lives on to continue tutoring Abra after the book ends. It really did seem like King was setting it up for Dan to be killed by one of Rose's minions, a mousy lesbian named Sari. Sari is hiding in the shed and completely missed when Dan and Abra storm the RV campground and handily kill all members of the True Knot. But no, King reminds us that he used to be able to write a good scare by bringing back Horace Derwent. Dan has brought that most malevolent of spirits back home to Colorado, and Derwent actually helps Dan by killing Sari before the True Knot member can ambush Dan. This serves as a final punctuation mark showing the true knot are completely ineffective. And because Abra doesn't help Dan go into the great beyond, it also makes Dan's scenes of helping others more unrelated to the plot. If you wanted to stretch, you could say that the entire true knot is terminal, with the measles, and Dan is helping them go to the great beyond. But he's not doing it through soothing words and easing their death, He's literally pushing Rose the Hat off a cliff. But he's not doing it alone. No, Dan has help from Jack Torrance. At the site where the Overlook once stood, Dan and Abra try to push Rose off a mountain, but it's a struggle until another force comes to help. The spirit of Jack Torrance saves his son. And then, no joke, Jack uses his hand to sketch a flying kiss that Dan remembered from his childhood that was their end-of-the-day ritual. Only, it wasn't. I just read The Shining. Nowhere in The Shining did Jack Torrance sketch a kiss and ask Danny to dream of a dragon. No, I have to wonder if King actually got confused with his classic 1977 novel and his embarrassing 1997 TV miniseries. I'm just thankful the spirit of Jack Torrance didn't say, Kissin' kissin', that's what I've been missin', but this scene comes perilously close. I was almost suffering strain from the amount of eye-rolling I did during these last chapters, and that really does hurt this book. But in retrospect, the book is a fun read. It's a compulsive read, but it's not a particularly smart book. In fact, I find it ironic that in the 70s and 80s, King was considered a hack by critics, literature snobs, and my own English teachers. But in the decades since, King has been accepted as a proper writer, and yet he turns out this, which really feels like a pulpy, hacky novel. 
In fact, I was very tempted in this review to compare it to The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown's highly best-selling novel that I did read and found myself compulsively going to the next chapter, but feeling really bad about reading it and just knowing I was reading trash. And then I realized that's completely unfair to King because this book is nowhere near as gimmicky as The Da Vinci Code. And truthfully, Dr. Sleep is gorgeously written. So while it may have that guilty pleasure type of feel, it is miles above other mainstream fiction out there. And that's King's prose. It's irresistible. He made me cry. He thrilled me. He again switched from third person to second person for a period when describing the true knot and how we avoid them when we see their motorcade of RVs outside of McDonald's knowing they're going to take forever in line when they order. But despite King's ability as a wordsmith, this one just lacks in story. I just have to wonder if King was too close to his characters to write a truly thrilling tale. I am really, really happy to see Dan Torrance and to find out how his story continued. But I don't think that 36 years from now, readers will be pining for a sequel to Dr. Sleep the way they were for The Shining. And I'm also really, really happy that you have stuck with me through the spoilers in this review. Have you read Dr. Sleep? If so, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can email me at arnie at booksandnachos.com or come to our forums. As I said in previous podcasts, these Books and Nachos reviews take a lot of time to write, research, record, and edit. So if you're enjoying them, please take a few minutes to let me know your thoughts on the book. And you can also help spread the word about this podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And I'll be back very soon with another Stephen King review. But it's not what you think. I'm returning to the in-order of release review to sync back up with Now Playing, and starting this spring, Now Playing is going to be looking at all of the movies based on the short stories from King's 1978 collection, Night Shift. But between The Shining and Night Shift, King had another novel published, but not under his name. The Rage by Richard Bachman was published in September 1977, just eight months after The Shining was released. For reasons I'll discuss, The Rage is now out of print, but it was collected in the mid-80s in the Bachman Books compilation, which is available at almost every used bookstore I've gone to, so hopefully you can find a copy to read along with me. That review will be out in January. Then I'll be back after that as we start reviewing all the short stories from Night Shift. Of course, two of those are already reviewed, the Salem's Lot sequel One for the Road and prequel Jerusalem's Lot, and you can hear those reviews already posted at booksandnachos.com. So once more, thank you for joining me for this review of Dr. Sleep. I'm going to go get some sleep myself. And until I return with the rage, please remember to support your local bookstore, even if it's a local used bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.